good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 is where we are going to start off this morning as we continue unpacking the reality of the incarnation. What it really means that Christ came into this world. We talk about incarnation, we talk about something becoming flesh, incarnate. And when we look at the incarnation of Jesus, we are seeing Jesus coming in the flesh to this world. It's a very powerful reality. The advent, the promise of His coming and coming in flesh. And what does that mean? And and how does that practically um, flesh itself out? To use a pun there. How does it... Incarnation, flesh itself out. Um, How did... It'll click with you about 2 o'clock this afternoon. You go, oh, I get that. That was good. Um, How does that really impact our lives? You know, when we talk about the Sundays of Advent, hope and and love and joy and peace, these are terms and concepts that are very um, rich and very meaningful. And these, these, these terms, these concepts that are so rich and meaningful, they're rich and meaningful precisely because I believe that they answer some of life's most pressing questions. There are very intense questions that all of humanity is seeking to answer, seeking to understand. People are really striving to, to, uh, to, to comprehend how do we live in this world and what does it mean. And, and people deal with all kinds of questions. In fact, during this Advent season, there are five questions that, that are governing what, what we're doing and what we're studying here. Because I believe that when we look at the incarnation, we look at the hope and the love and the joy and the peace of, of Jesus, and when we see these things, we begin to realize that, that the incarnation of Jesus answers these five very pressing questions. Last week, we looked at the first question. The first question was, what is the future going to be like? And we sought to understand that. And we looked at the fact that God's plan for the future for his children is incredible. He's going to unite heaven and earth. He's going to bring them all together. It's going to be this incredible thing. No more tears, no more pain, no more sin. And when Christ came into the world, the hope of his coming is that he was coming to begin to usher in that kingdom that's coming. And that's one of the great things when we look at at the advent of Jesus is that he's ushering in the kingdom to come. The second question, the one we're going to unpack today, is what went wrong in the world? We still have to answer that question for ourselves and for other people. What went wrong? We'll unpack that here in a second here. Third question that the incarnation will deal with in, uh, next week, Lord willing, is what is the point of life? What is the meaning of life? And we're going to look at that, and we're going to see how the incarnation of Jesus answers that question. Then we'll move into, is God passive? You stop and think about God. Some people think that he's passive. Some people think he's just sitting back doing nothing. He's watching us from a distant shore, just wondering what's going on here. Is he passive? And we'll see the incarnation shows us God is not passive. It's an active God. And then finally, we'll get down to the most practical question of all. What does God want from me? What does he want from me? We're going to see that the, the advent of Jesus answers those pressing questions of life. Now today we're dealing with this second question. What went wrong in the world? And we know there's things aren't right in this world. I can remember when I was a youth pastor, I was 25 years old and and I was a youth pastor at a church and uh, that church had a thing what they called pastor of the day, which meant that you know one staff member 
had the call. If somebody called and had a need, you, if you were the pastor of the day, your job was to take that call. So I got pastor of the day duty, fell on one particular day. There was a phone call that there was a gentleman in the hospital and that he was dying. And I needed to go see him. And I went to the hospital. The family was all there around him. And right there in front of us all, he was translated into glory. And that was the first time I'd ever witnessed that. And I'm standing at the end of the bed. This happens. The whole family looks at me. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I'm the 25-year-old youth pastor. I don't know what to say. So I just started singing Amazing Grace. Had nothing to say, so let's sing a song. But I remember that because it's stuck in my mind that that moment is such an intense moment. And when you're standing at that moment, you realize several things. There's obviously the hope of the gospel. This man was a Christian, so I knew he was translated into glory at that moment, that he was escaping from this world. But in another sense, something's not right here because it still hurts. It's still painful. It's still difficult. Things aren't right. And so the question comes down to, what went wrong in the world? What went wrong? And how do we understand what went wrong? And what is God going to do about that? What has he done? Well, we're going to look at this today, and we're going to see what went wrong. And we're going to look at it here in Genesis chapter 3. And when we look at this element, we're going to recognize something. And, and, and I hope that you really see this. That when we talk about something, what went wrong, I'm hoping that you uh, can answer the question a little bit more deeply uh, than just saying sin entered the world. My intention for us today is to really understand what that means. Right? Because we could answer the question, well, what went wrong? Why is there death? Why is there pain? Sin entered the world. That's a simple answer. I know you all know that answer. You could pass that in a Bible test here. But what does that really mean that sin entered the world? What does that really mean? And if you're not ready to answer that question, then you're going to miss some of the beauty of the love of the Incarnation. You're going to miss some of the beauty of the love of it. And so we're going to see this today. We're going to unpack this and get into this, to this by asking, by basically answering three questions that you're outlined this morning. First question, what went wrong in the world? We're going to look at it. But then the second thing we're going to look at is what is the nature of evil? Because what we're going to understand is that it isn't just sin entered the world. Evil entered the world. And now we're going to understand what evil is. And then we're going to answer a third question, what did God do about it? And my prayer for you is that you would not only understand what went wrong in the world, but that you would get an understanding of evil and of Christ, what he did, and then his love, his love and the profundity of the love of God to respond to evil the way that he did. And I hope that this really just makes your understanding of Christ so much more profound and and awe-inspiring. But let's look here at what went wrong. Join with me here in Genesis chapter 3. Look here at verse 1 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we have creation. We have Adam, we have Eve, we have the, the, the world. The, Adam and Eve are now in this garden. It's a wonderful place. God has provided for them. 
And, and, and he said, listen, everything is yours with the exception of this one tree. You're not allowed to eat from this tree at all. Now the serpent shows up. We know this is the devil. The devil's incarnated this creature, or is, I mean, entered into this creature. And as he's entered into this creature, he begins a conversation with the woman. And this conversation is a pretty intense conversation. In fact, as we look at this, there's basically a question asked by the serpent, an answer given by the woman, and a rebuttal by the serpent. And in that question and that answer and that rebuttal, we will discover what went wrong in the whole world. It's all answered right here. Okay, now let's look at the question. There's two parts to Satan's question. There's what I call the doubt and the distortion. The doubt and the distortion. Look at the doubt. Notice the question. Did God actually say? Now notice, he's doubting God. Doubting the command they were given. It's a negative statement. Anytime somebody comes to you in a negative way, what does it do? It creates a negative environment. Right? Two kids. One kid's going outside to play. The mom says, I do not want you playing in the street. The other kid comes up to him. He, he runs outside. His friend runs up and says, did your mom really say you can't play in the street? Well, right, all of a sudden I'm challenging the mom. It's a challenge. It's a question. This is what it does is it creates an atmosphere of doubt. It opens up the door for, for us to begin to unpack and, 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 and twist the truth. And so this is the, the subtlety of it. Now mark this subtlety. Did God actually say, store this in your brain because it will become very important later when we look at Jesus. This question, this first part of this question. So just mark it now, and in a few minutes you'll see how important it is. So, so first thing Satan does is he creates a sense of doubt. Then he does, Satan in this question offers a distortion. Notice, did God actually say you could not eat from any tree in the garden? Now the key is the word any What was the command? You can eat from every tree in the garden, except one. If there was 1,000 trees that produce fruit, they could eat from 999 of them. Just one was off limits. But what is his question? Did God say that you couldn't eat anything at all? Did God just say, that's it, you're on this earth, no food for you? Is that what he said? Now, why is he doing this? He's offering a distortion. He's creating a negative atmosphere. Satan is choosing to have his line of reasoning center on the prohibition. Right? Like I said, if there's a thousand trees, they get to eat from 999 of them. That is huge. But what is he doing? He's taking the one thing they can't do, he's making it bigger than what it is. It's distorting the reality. Now, what this is, is this is just breaking up the ground for the rebuttal that's going to come. He's just creating an atmosphere. Okay? And you've got to catch all this because it will help you understand the nature of evil here in just a minute. Okay, now we have the answer. The woman answers. There are two things the woman could do at this point. One is she could do what I believe uh, obviously would have been the right answer. Paul made, made a statement in Romans 9 when he said, who are you, old man, to answer, you know, to, to challenge God? That would have been the right answer. 
right? Who are you to ask me that question? You got a problem with God, go ask him. That's the right answer. But she did the second thing, which is answer the question, and when you answer a fool according to his folly, you feed the folly, right? So because she entered into this dialogue, she is now getting sucked into the premise of his question. Because he's got a premise now that God has really maximized this prohibition, and now she's in it. And you can see her mindset. Notice verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now we need to notice what she omits and what she adds. She leaves something out and she puts something in, which shows us that she's accepted the premise of his question. What does she leave out? Well, just look over in Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16 for a minute. Let's look at what they were given. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely, that's a key word, eat of every tree of the garden. Now, I believe the ESV did a very poor translation there. A better word would have been, you may freely eat of every tree, which is more, more closer to the Hebrew. You may freely eat. Here's what it means. No dietary restrictions. No such thing as breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Eat, eat, keep eating, never stop. You may eat of these 999 trees. There weren't that many. I'm just making that up. You can eat of all of these trees as much as you want, whenever you want. Do not worry about caloric intake. Do not worry about cholesterol. It is all yours. Eat as much as you want. There's no diabetes. There's nothing. It was open field. Eat as much as you want from everything except one. That's what he said. But what does she say? She just says, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She leaves out the, the freely. The, the, she leaves out the every. She, she leaves out the, the massive openness of this. And she just says, no, we can eat. We can eat. Okay? But then notice what she does. What does she add? She adds the word touch to it. Neither may we eat it or touch it lest we die. God did not say you couldn't touch it. They could climb the tree if they wanted. Right? They could build a tree house if they wanted. Just can't eat the fruit. That's all. Okay? But she adds that on there. So what's she doing? She has fallen into prey of this kind of negative world that that Satan has created, and she has minimized the freedom, maximized the prohibition. And now that she's minimized the freedom and maximized the prohibition... The ground is set. Right? The the ground is set. It is ready. The earth has been cultivated. And now Satan offers his rebuttal. Look at his rebuttal. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there it is. There's the the temptation. Here's what the serpent wanted to do. The serpent had one thing in mind with that statement. He wants to get the woman to doubt God. To doubt God. To, 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 To doubt His Word. 
to get in between her and God. And so he says, no, 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 no. In fact, there's just four things he does here. Four things in his answer. These are critical to catch. The four things. The first thing the serpent does is he substitutes his word for God's word. God says in Genesis 2.17, if you eat it, you will surely die. Surely means stick a fork in it, guaranteed. Okay, Done. You will die. Okay, that, that, That's what that means. He says... You will surely not die. He's offering an alternate theology now. That's what Satan does. Going to offer counter theology here. This is a, a counter theology that says, no, 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 no. God's word doesn't really mean that. This is what it really means. This is really what God is saying. Not going to die. So, so he, he, he substitutes his word for God's word. Second thing the serpent does is he questions the goodness of God. He questions the goodness of God. You see, God doesn't want you to eat of this because he knows that if you eat it, you will benefit. God is not good. God's not worthy of your praise. God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's holding back from you. So he questions God's goodness. God does not have your best interests in mind. What you have right now is not everything you need. There's more out there that you better get. This is the entrance of dissatisfaction. This is that entrance of that element of your life that says, I don't have everything I need right now to bring glory to God. If only I had this. This is the entrance of the if-then worldview. If I had this, then this. If this, this. And that whole thing. God's not good. He hasn't given you everything you need. You need more. Third thing the serpent does. As he tells the woman, you will benefit if you break God's command. True prosperity comes when you step outside of the limitations of what God says. God's so antiquated anyways, he doesn't know what he's talking about. True prosperity doesn't come from following his commands. True, spot, you know, true joy, true fun, true prosperity, true life exists outside. Why in the world do we want to come hang out with God and all the God stuff when all the fun's out there? It's all out there. Okay, so, so you'll benefit. It's in your best interest to break God's word. And then fourthly, this is the key one. He redefines divinity. He redefines divinity. God knows the day you eat of this, you'll be like him. Knowing good and evil. Now guess what? They did get the knowledge of good and evil, but guess what? It didn't make them like him. It made them like the serpent. The knowledge of good and evil didn't make them godly. The knowledge of good and evil made them wretched. Because that's not the definition of divinity. That's not the definition of divinity. But he redefines it. He offers an alternate path towards holiness, an alternate path towards spirituality that ends up winding in death. Winding up in death. This is what he does. Now, there's three things I want you to observe here that you've got to keep in mind. That's all Satan says. He says nothing else. No more. The serpent never tells the woman to eat the fruit. He never says, you should eat this. He doesn't do that. The serpent never says, follow me, I'll be your God. He doesn't say that either. All the serpent did was introduce a philosophy that said God cannot be trusted. 
And in following God, there's bondage. And in breaking God's law, there's freedom and prosperity and divinity. That's all he did. He introduced a worldview that said, God cannot be trusted. God's way is not the right way. God's way is bondage. This is where freedom is. And the moment he introduces that thought, what happens? The fruit becomes desirable to them. The fruit becomes desirable to them. And he backs off. And we know what happens. They look at it and they go, wow, this is good fruit. And this will make us wise. And this really will taste good. And we really do need this. And they start justifying and rationalizing. This is really good. And boom, they eat it and they sin. Why? It wasn't because he was sitting there begging them. What he did is he altered their view of God. And once you alter someone's view of God, once you alter someone's view of obedience to God, once you say God can't be trusted, then sin becomes desirable. Sin becomes desirable. In fact, sin just becomes the natural reality. Okay. Now, we're going to stop here. We know what happens. They eat the fruit. They're separated from God. God brings consequences upon them. He promises them in verse 15 that he's going to send someone through the woman to crush Satan. So we have an early gospel presentation there. But that's, that's where, where this thing leads. But what I want to do now is look at the nature of evil. Because right there was the entrance of evil into the world. Okay? So I want to look at the nature of evil. Let's just take a moment and, and just pause and, 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 and reflect upon what we just studied here. Because I want you to think about something. If I say something is evil, what comes to your mind? Things like the Holocaust come to your mind, right? When, when you think of evil, you think of Hitler, you think of Stalin, you think of terrorism, you think of September 11th, you think of just these, these big, horrendous events, right? Isn't that what you think of when, when I say something is evil, Right? You, you wouldn't look at a, a baby just born and go, wow, that is evil, right? You'd say, that's horrible. Like, could you imagine if I showed up to the hospital, somebody said, wow, look, at that baby's evil. You'd say, get out of here. You can't say that. It's a precious baby. How could you call it evil? Right? We, don't, we think of evil in terms of a holocaust, in terms of torture. Yet, we do say that at this moment in Genesis 3, this was the fall of humanity. Yet, when this happened, there was no terrorism. There was no blood. There were no bombs. Right? Adam wasn't taking Eve and torturing her. All that happened, if you were flying over in an airplane, is you'd see two people eating a piece of fruit. And you wouldn't call that evil. In terms of the scope of evil. So, so what is the nature of evil? And what is it about this moment that can help us understand what evil is? Well, there's something I want you to comprehend here. There is what, I'm just going to give you some terms. These are just my terms. So whatever, they're worthless in one sense. But, but I look at it this way. I like to look at that there's the root of evil. And then there's the, can you guess what the next word will be? Fruit of evil, right? Good alliteration. You should have figured it would rhyme right? The root of evil and the fruit of evil. The fruit of evil is the Holocaust. But the fact that the Holocaust ended, the end of World War II, it didn't stop evil, right? 
If I could go around the world and free everybody who's being tortured right now, would it stop evil? No, you see, that's the fruit of evil. Now we have to ask, what is the root of evil? In this Genesis 3, we have the root of evil. And this will help you understand the birth of Christ. Okay? The root of evil is this. Here's what evil is in its simplest form based on Genesis 3. Evil is nothing more than rebellion against God, his character, his authority, and his order. That's what evil is. At its core, it's rebellion against God, his character, his authority, and his order. God, my world, I create it. This is how I want it to be. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Man believes the lie that God is withholding. He's not good. His authority is bad. His order is bad. His system is bad. The way he's established things is bad. What he's provided is not enough. Discontentment. All of these things, that's all the root of evil. When you think of evil, don't think of evil in relation to it's only its fruit. The Holocaust, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, whatever, that kind of stuff. Think of it in its root form. It's a quality that attaches itself to your heart and to your mind, and it leads you to think that all that is good about God is really bad. Now, you might say, I would never consciously say all that is good about God is bad. I'd never consciously say that. Some do, but like you might say that. But just stop and think about this. Let's just get some practical illustrations of, of the root of evil. When we were children and our parents told us to do something, did we always do it? No. Did we ever fib to our parents? I might have once. Maybe, possibly, twice. I'm glad they're getting older and they only remember the good things. <laughs> right? What was it about me in my heart that when I saw my dad come home with a box of ho-hos and he put them up in the cupboard really high as a special treat for the family, that when he left and went outside to go do some work outside, I went and got a step stool and climbed up and opened the ho-hos and ate one and closed the box back up again to try to make it look like it was sealed, which you couldn't do, but I put something on top of it to completely manipulate it and then hid in my room and ate the ho-ho and stuck the wrapper in my pocket and walked around with a wrapper in my pocket till I can go over to my friend's garbage can and throw it away. You want to know what that is? Evil, okay? Why? God said, children, Honor your parents, right? Children, obey your parents. Yet there were things in my heart that said, no, no, I don't want to obey you. That's evil. You see, evil says that I don't want to do what God wants. Doesn't the Bible teach that we should forgive people? Are 100% of your accounts secure? Who are you holding bitterness against? See, let's stop there, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's something inside of us that even though God says this, we say, but you don't understand, God. This person has done 
I don't need to because if my wife fulfilled me then, if my husband was worthy of respect, I would speak nice about him. On and on, right? We have a thousand excuses. But when you reduce it all down, what is it? Evil is the quality that says, God, I'm not wanting to do it your way. Now that's the root of evil. That's the root of it. That's why it's important to to recognize Satan did not say, hey, you ought to become a terrorist. Or Adam, you ought to be, start a whole thing called the mafia. Right? Or, hey, let's take some of these things and turn them into drugs so you can sell them to your kids. He didn't do any of that. Satan just did three things in one sense. We could summarize those four things down to three. Satan challenged the authority of God Satan challenged the word of God. Satan challenged the character of God. That's what he did. He challenged God, his authority. He challenged God in his word. He challenged God in his character. He just kept challenging it. And Adam and Eve believed it. And once they believed those things about God, they said, I don't need to follow you anymore. I have my own agenda. I have my own way. We could say it this way, just to unpack it a little further. Evil presents the love of God as a restriction and freedom from the love of God as the way of true blessing and prosperity. Evil presents the love of God as a restriction and freedom from the love of God as a way of true blessing and prosperity. That's what evil does. And so... Satan is kind of like this. Satan presents the same freedom to, presented the same freedom to Adam and Eve that, that a young kid could potentially present to a goldfish. Think about this. Watch this. Picture a kid sitting there looking at his goldfish tank. He's got a goldfish trying to swim around the gold. And all the goldfish is doing is swimming around these little rock houses and sunken ships that are all in the goldfish tank, right? And he's just swimming around. And the, and the, and the kid could go up to that goldfish and say, wow, you're just living in his tank. That's all you're doing. You're living in this tank, swimming around these fake sunken ships and rocks, and that's all you do. I'm going to liberate you, goldfish. I'm going to take you to downtown Sycamore. Scoop the goldfish out. Walk them to downtown Sycamore in your hands. Say, look, look at all the Christmas lights. Listen to the music. Let me take you to the courthouse. Look how beautiful it is. What's going to happen to the goldfish? It's going to die. There's no freedom in that. That's the freedom Satan offers us. He says, listen, you're in this little tank over here called God's love and God's provision. And it's not enough for you. God hasn't given you everything you need. You're at such a deficit. Look around you. Everybody has so much more than you. I'm going to liberate you and take you out of the tank of his love. And I'm going to bring you to downtown Sycamore. And I'm going to show you the lights. But you know, the fish was designed live in the tank and we were designed to live in god's love and god's provision not to be out of it so see evil believes evil says take me out of the tank i know there's more life out there than there is in here i don't i don't trust you god you don't have my back heaven helps them that helps themselves so i'm gonna help myself first that's evil okay that's the core of evil so now the question is what has god done about evil. What has he done? This leads us to the incarnation. I'm going to ask you to just turn to the gospel of Luke. We're going to look at some things that we've studied in Luke already. 
because we're going to recognize that when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world to deal with evil. He did. He came into the world to deal with evil. You can turn to Luke 4 if you want. He came into the world to deal with evil. And when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at, his, at, his, at what he's done, I want you to catch how Jesus absolutely has dealt with this root of evil. Now, here's what you need to understand about Jesus. When Jesus came the first time, he came to deal ultimately with the root of evil. When he comes back, on his return, he deals with the fruit. But right now, he's dealing with the root. He's getting to the core of the issue. God is not silent when it comes to the evil that's in this world. But he's dealing with it at its root level. At its root level. Because remember, at its root level, it's saying, I don't trust you, God. At its fruit level, that's leading to a holocaust. That's leading to terrorism. All that kind of stuff. At its root level, it's saying, I don't trust you. You don't have my back. You're not good. You're not worthy of worship. So, now, we've studied in Luke. We've seen the life of Jesus. Let's look at how he's dealt with evil. There's three things I want to show you when you look at how Jesus dealt with evil. Just in passages we've already studied in Luke. The first thing I want to show you is that Jesus resisted evil himself. When he came, the first thing that he did when he was incarnated is that when he came into this world, he resisted the very temptation of evil that Adam and Eve faced. He resisted it. Satan came at at Jesus with the same exact temptation. It wasn't, the, because remember, the issue isn't whether or not they ate the tree. The issue is whether or not they would doubt God. Whether or not they would doubt who God was, his provision, and all of this. So now look at this. Look at, look at how Jesus, when he came into the world, how he resisted the evil. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let me just read you this, these 13 verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said, now remember I told you to mark that little, did God say? Okay, now listen to the devil's temptation here. It's the same exact logic going on. If you are the son of God, doubt, right? It's bringing the same exact thing. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And he said to him, To you I will give you all this authority and all the glory, for it's all been delivered to me. Lie. And I give it to whom I will. Lie. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Right? If you eat of this fruit, you're going to become like God. Lie. Knowing good and evil, true, but not like God. You'll benefit You'll benefit, right? Isn't that what he's saying? Oh, worship me and it will benefit you. And what does he say? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of a temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, doubt, 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 right? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What's going on there? Jesus came, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, comes into this world. The first thing that happens, he gets the onslaught of what the first Adam took. And what does he do? He stays true to God and his word and his glory. And he says, you're worthy of all my allegiance. You're going to provide everything I need. I don't even need food. All I need is you. I'm living for you. I'll trust that you will give me what I need at the right time. You get all of my praise and all my honor, and I will not tempt you or test you in any way. See, he stayed true. This moment is, excuse me, the exact moment that Adam and Eve faced. But he resisted it. So when we see the incarnation, we see the first thing that Jesus did is he resisted the evil. Second thing I want to show you that Jesus did. Jump ahead to Luke 11. The second thing that Jesus did is Luke 11 verses 1 through 4 is he showed us what a righteous mindset looks like. Right? We, we know what an evil mindset looks like. An evil mindset doubts God and doubts his provision and doesn't believe we have all that we need. It is discontent. Comes up with excuses for not obeying God. Comes up with excuses for not living for God's kingdom. Finds excuses for finding joy in the things that, that God hates. And all of this, that's what the sinful mind does. What would a righteous mind look like? Jesus taught us what a righteous mind is to look like. Notice uh, Luke eleven one through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, when you read that prayer through the lens of the problem of evil, in our hearts. That prayer is the exact opposite of what evil is. It's the exact opposite. Notice, this prayer says, God is to be worshipped. Hallowed be your name. God is to be worshipped. Right? And so, so, so when the temptation comes to say, God is holding out. He's not worthy of anything. You don't have what you need, and you start doubting. Oh, so you know what? God is to be worshipped. He gets all of my allegiance. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. You should worship the Lord your God and only Him. Just Him. God is to be worshipped. Second thing that this prayer says is that God's plan is the plan we must be committed to. Your kingdom come. Right? What is Satan trying to get them to do? Come up with their own plan. Come up with their own path to divinity. Come up to their own plan of righteousness. Do it your own way. But the righteous mind says, no, your way, your kingdom come. Your will be done. You do it your way on earth as you do it in heaven. I trust you and you alone. I want your way. Notice the third thing. God's provision is what we wait for. Give us this day our daily bread. God's holding out from you. If you eat this, you'll benefit. You need more. You don't have enough. No, God, you will provide what I need for today, daily bread. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to trust that I'll get through today. You'll give me what I need. I will just walk with my mindset, trusting in your daily provision. 
And then the last two elements deal with honest realities as sinners, right? We are sinners and we're not perfect. That's why we say, forgive us as we forgive. I'm not coming to God thinking that I'm on the same peer as God, that I'm peer to peer. I can challenge him. I can challenge his authority. No, I'm a sinner. I need, the, I need your forgiveness. I need to grant it to others. And then finally, I'm not divine. I don't want to believe the, the, the lie that I can become divine. I've got some kind of spark of divinity. We're not divine. That's why I say, lead me not into temptation. Why? If I go down the road of temptation, I'll go there. I'm a human. I need you. I need you to protect me. I need your way. I need your plan. You see, here's what Jesus is doing. When he says, I'm going to teach you to pray, I'm going to teach you to pray with a mindset that is set apart from an evil mindset. This is what a holy person, how a holy person prays. But you see it in light of the sin, what real evil is. But there's a third reality that we learn about Jesus, right? Not only did he resist, not only did he teach me, but the third reality is that he made a way for me to reject evil. He actually provided a way. Just turn back to Luke 9. Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. and Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's saying, here's the deal. If you will come after me, if you will recognize that the root of evil is in you, and in that root of evil, you're going to challenge the authority of God. You're going to challenge the way of God. You're going to challenge the provision of God. And you know that, and you say, yeah, I believe that's in me. I believe, I have never known a moment when that hasn't been there. When I was an infant and my parents said, come here, I went the other way. It's in there. It's deep, it's embedded. Jesus says, you're willing to come to me and say, that's who I am. He says, guess what? I'm going to take that death from you, and I'm going to give you life. You get life for this. You can exchange that rebellion if you will lay down that rebellion to him. But the person who comes to Jesus and says, well, I'm not, I don't really see myself as that bad. I don't see myself as that bad. So Jesus, I, I want to I hang with you, but I don't want to lay down my life and die to myself and live to you. I'd rather just partner with you. My brains and your brawn will go a long way. He says, guess what? You'll find death in that. On the day of judgment, there will not be life for you. I'm not going to allow you in the presence of my Father. You see, the good news is that he's provided a way for us to lay that rebellion down. And here's the great thing about it all. We think about it in in terms of the love of Jesus. And this this is only going to make sense to just a those of you who are parents, but you know when those times come when your kids defy you? They just did something and they just defied you. Do you know that feeling you get inside? Maybe if you're not a parent, maybe let me just think about it this way. When you were a child, you did something wrong and your parents sent you to your room and they didn't come for a while. 
you know. I can think of my dad sending me in my room and not coming for a while. Now I'm a parent. I know why. I'm glad he cooled off. <laughs> I gave him a lot of reasons to get worked up. Right? Do you realize something? That feeling does not exist in God. Do you realize that? That does not exist in God. You know what's there? Compassion. You come with that rebellion to him, and he says, I've made a way. I've sent my son. He's taken your wrath. Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. You're my child. See, that's the good news. That feeling doesn't exist in God. God responds in love to our evil, not rage. But Jesus made it clear to those who do not come before him and lay their life and their heart down, they will not experience that love. They won't experience it. They will experience the consequences of their rebellion. Because at its root, evil is rebellion against God. And God will exact punishment. It either comes on Christ or it comes on you, but it will come. But the good news of the love of Jesus is he's provided a way. So when we think about Christmas, let's wrap it up. When we think about Christmas, we think about Jesus' entrance in the world, just recognize he's come to deal with the root of evil. And the good news is he's come to deal with the root of evil in your own heart. And today, what is waiting for you, for all of us, if the Spirit of God is conjuring up points of rebellion in your own heart, is not a rage, vengeful father who needs to separate himself and go in another room till he cools off but as one who had a plan to send his son into the world to take the punishment so that he could say, come child, present me your evil and I'm going to exchange it for life and righteousness and peace. Would you bow your head with me? This morning, if you have never done that, if you have never come to Christ and say, I've never exchanged my life for his, that rebellion's in me, I would just ask you, just in the quietness of your own heart, to say, I need to exchange that. I'm presenting it all to you. Give me the life and the peace and the righteousness that comes. And if you have done that, but yet you still sense the residue and it's hanging on, you can present it. Because if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's His love. So Father, I just come before you this morning grateful for your great love. You sent Christ into this world to deal with evil. He resisted it. He resisted it. Then he taught us what a righteous mind like. And then he provided a way for us to lay down our life to get his, his righteousness. Lord, for those this morning that have never done that, that Maybe today they're getting introduced to the reality of evil in this world, that it's in their heart. I pray, God, that they would not come out of fear to you, but come out of love to say, thank you. Take it. I want life. May they see that the life that they think they have is is deception. It's death. May they experience the freedom of being in your love. For us this morning that have done this, yet we still have the residue. May we confess our sins this morning. 
fall upon your love and recognize you came into the world to deal with us. I thank you for the privilege we have of being your children. I thank you that we get to celebrate your love. Lord, may it mean so much more to us today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.